Let's open our Bibles to uh, Ezekiel chapter 5. I'm going to review chapter 5 because we, we pretty much covered it verse by verse on Sunday morning. But uh, if you weren't here, uh, let's dive right in because I would like to um, get at least these chapters cracked out this evening. The setting for uh, chapter 5, again, um, Ezekiel is going to be using certain signs to try to communicate to the people uh, that they are not going back to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem has not yet fallen. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, between chapters 5 through 24, all of these chapters are going to take place before Jerusalem falls for the final time. And herein lies the problem for Jeremiah in Jerusalem, but for Ezekiel, who's already in captivity in Babylon. Uh, false prophets are saying that um, this captivity is short-lived. They'll be going home soon. And it's Ezekiel's job to persuade them that that is not the case, that they are going to remain in Babylon for the next 70 years. So in these chapters, Sunday's message was warning signs. And what we have in the first four verses is Ezekiel being told by the Lord to shave his hair, shave his beard, get a balance, divide it in three different um, segments, uh, one one-third of it um, will be um, st- uh, struck with the sword. One-third will be scattered in the wind. And um, one-third uh, will be burned in the midst of the city. And he's making a statement. And he's dramatizing it by actually showing the sign, this is what's going to happen. And um, the explanation... Uh, for the sign is given to us in verse 12. One third will die of the pestilence. And he's talking about uh, those in Jerusalem. Um, Another third will be consumed by the famine and the other third by the sword. Then he said, take it just a little bit and put it in your garment, Ezekiel. And um, we read that. In verse 3, you'll take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. So there will be a remnant that's left behind, but only a small remnant. So chapter 5 is basically last Sunday's message. Uh, We did go through it uh, pretty much verse by verse. So I'm going to jump into chapter 6. The difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6 now, is chapter 5 was directed primarily to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's fall. As we get into chapter 6, let's read the first seven verses, and we're now leaving the city of Jerusalem, and the prophecy is going to be the surrounding countryside, the high places, Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me. The son of man, I want you to set your face toward the mountains of Jerusalem and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you. In contrast to chapter 5, where it was primarily and only to Jerusalem, 
He broadens the judgment, and I will destroy your high places. High places where they would have been involved with, with idol worship. Verse 4, then your altars will be desolate, your incense altars will be broken. I will cast down your slain men before your idols. I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. And all your dwelling places, the cities, shall be laid waste. Notice cities, plural, outside of Jerusalem. And the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now again, uh, this saying, and you shall know I am the Lord, is the reoccurring phrase in the book of Ezekiel. And I'm going to repeat this over and over again because it's going to reach a crescendo when we get to what's going on in the world today. We talked about it on Sunday. And that is what's taking place in the Middle East right now. And it's not being reported on. Oh, by the way, I have to end the study by 7.30 because I want to go watch Hillary and catch that. <laughs> and if you believe that, I have a, a bridge you can buy also in Brooklyn that I have for sale. Um, how does the devil do this? It's sort of like, look over here, look over here, look over here. But what's really happening is happening in Syria right now. And um, how many of you know that the, the tension between the United States and Russia, it's in your news bites tonight. Uh, there's not, I'm quoting now, is, is as dramatic a time during, not since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. At this time, uh, the DEFCON warning system feels it has to increase to DEFCON 3. Is everybody familiar with the DEFCON? comms and how it relates to military war. It goes from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 2 to DEFCON 3, DEFCON 4, we're on the verge, DEFCON 5, we're in a nuclear war. Did you know that it was just upgraded to DEFCON 3? It's part of your news bites. Make sure you check it out. I want to know, I want to know why that isn't in the news tonight. And um, the tensions are that tense right now with uh, the with uh, Russia, and the reason I bring it up, I just mentioned Ezekiel 38. That's what's happening. We talked about this on Sunday. Warning signs, and they're all over. But the enemy's saying, "Look over here! Look over here! Look over here!" Anything other than what's really going on, and um, uh, a remnant will know. And that brings us into verses eight through ten: salvation of the remnant. There's a whole Bible study here that we could get sidetracked on. Yet, even though he's going to judge not just Jerusalem, but their surrounding cities, their high places, their false gods, verse 8 through 10, yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried away captives because I have, uh, it was crushed by their 
adulterous heart which has departed from me. And by their eyes which play the harlot after the idols, they will loathe themselves for the evil which they commit in all the abomination. And again, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, this is repeated 52, 54 times in the book. And that, and I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. So verses 8 through 10 speaks of this remnant. Verses the rest of this chapter, 11 through 14, will be the devastation that Nebuchadnezzar will bring on the land. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, pound your fists, stamp your feet, and say, alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. For they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Getting back to chapter five, the three ways. And he who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. When their slain men are among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintop, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, wherever they're offered sweet incense to their idols, so I will stretch out my hand against them, make the land desolate, yes, more desolate than the wilderness towards Dibla, and all the inhabitants, and then they shall know that I am the Lord." So I think we read it at least three times, if not four, then they will know that I am the Lord. That's the last verse of chapter five or 17, I the Lord have spoken it. Brings us to chapter seven, and this continues uh, the second of two messages of judgment against, not again just Jerusalem, but the entire land. And um, Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed, it won't be until chapter 20, did I say 25, 24. Uh, Jerusalem has not been destroyed, and although most of the inhabitants have been removed from the land, many people still remain there. However, the events which have already taken place did not cause them to turn to the Lord. And on top of that, they have listened to the false prophets because their message sounded better and um, more appealing than what Ezekiel has to say. So as we look at chapter seven, basically it's a continuing, um, it amazes me when I look at this, how many ways the Lord can say the same thing. And basically that's what, chapter seven is basically the description of how uh, the Babylonians are going to have this conquest, and it's all pertinent and, and important to the complete counsel of God. It's um, something that is going, the Lord decided is going to be around forever. So he's really wanting us to understand this very, very unique and special period in Israel's history where they're basically being disciplined for the 70-year period of time. And it amazes me how, diff- how many different ways the Lord, the Lord can say it. But again, uh, verse 9, I am the Lord who strikes. The last verse says, that they shall know that I am the Lord. That will be repeated again a couple times in it. I am just going to read through it. 
and uh, stop at several places and, and comment on it, except to say, remember that this is before the siege, tug of war going on uh, in the hearts and the minds of the people who are in Babylon um, and taking it in from the false prophets that they're going home. Ezekiel's job, to tell them otherwise. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end, explanation point. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. And now the end has come upon you. And I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will repay you for your abominations. My eye will not spare you. I'm not going to have pity. But I will repay your ways. And your abominations shall be in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And again, just to remind you how bad it was, they were, we'll get into it more when we get into chapter 8, when they're uh, weeping for Tammuz, they're in the sun worship. Um, uh, the leaders are caught up in worshiping. They're the example of uh, worshiping these, these pagan deities. And so, verse 5, thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come, an end has come, the end has come. And I read that, and I have this picture of a guy with a sandwich board walking up and down Main Avenue saying, the end is near, the end is near. Well, guess what? (laughs) The end is near. I made a point of this on Sunday. I say it, I believe it, and yet the world just keeps on going like absolutely nothing is, is, is going on. Um, Jesus made it clear, the generation that sees the nation of Israel come back. And how we tie this into what we're studying right now in Ezekiel is this, is, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 11 says, I'm gonna regather my people the second time. Now, in order for that to make any sense, you have to have a pretty good grip on, on the book of Ezekiel because this is the first time that they're out of the land and he brought them back And then the Lord says, I'm going to do it again. Now, Jesus gave warning signs in Luke 19. And he told them, he said, this is going to happen to Jerusalem. Um, You're going to be surrounded by your enemy. The temple's going to be destroyed. And then he gives them the reason. Because you didn't know the time of my coming. Implying what? They were supposed to know the time of their coming. And because they didn't know the time of the coming, now they're going to suffer the consequences. And so he prophesies, and he tells them that Jerusalem would be destroyed and they would be dispersed. That was um, on April 6, 32 AD. 38 years later, in 70 AD, that's exactly what the uh, 10th Roman legion under Titus did. And they've been out of the land of Israel since 70 AD, uh, the Bible says, can a nation be born in a day? It's put in a sort of a hypothetical type question. And the answer is, Israel became a nation in one day. And it was immediately attacked, should have been defeated, 
All the odds in the world were against them, and yet somehow they survived. And they'll never be driven out of the land again. Now that was 68 years ago. And um, so when we read these scriptures, the time has come, a day of trouble is near, the end has come, the end has come, Um, you could translate that very easily by saying the coming of the Lord, not the end. Let me clarify something here. People who don't know their Bible and are not saved often hear Christians say, oh, you're talking about the end of the world. End of the world is coming. That's what you crazy Christians are saying. No. The end of the world isn't going to happen for at least a thousand years. Are we clear on that one? The end of the world as we know it Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. It's going to happen. But it's not going to happen at least for 1,007 years from now. Good place for it, amen. Amen. Just so we're clear on that, so the next time somebody lays that on you, you crazy Christian, you always talk about the end of the world. No. The world's going to be here for at least 1,000 years. And it'll be the most glorious time that this planet has ever known. Um, No more... Mosquitoes when you're camping. Amen. No more ticks when you go camping. And, um, you know, the lion will lay down with the, the lamb. The animosity, that natural fear that exists in the animal kingdom is all of a sudden gone. And there's peace and there's tranquility. And um, you're not going to be bored. We are to reign as kings and priests with the Lord and my Bible says, to the degree that you're faithful now. It says, he's faithful in little. Just be faithful in just a little bit. Hang in there. Don't give up. Keep witnessing. Keep sharing with your, um, your influence of people that you have. And uh, if you're faithful in little, then the Lord says, someday, because you are faithful in little now, I'm going to make you faithful over much. Any employer knows this. He knows the people on staff that are hard workers. And um, they also know the ones that aren't. And so if we as human (laughs) can discern, that guy's a good worker, this one's not. (laughs) And if we can figure that much out, how much more our Heavenly Father who's keeping track of everything. So the Bible uses the term be an overcomer. Well, what does that mean? It means don't be like Lot's wife and look back and think there's something back there worth living for. There is not. So it, Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward, and I'm laying hold of. And um, yet the Bible clearly foretells, one of the articles here, sound doctrine will not be endured in the last days. Um, to teach verse by verse of the book of Ezekiel, people just a lot of people can't handle it. They don't want to handle it. Um, because it's just not appealing uh, for the self-mentality that this generation is a part of. And if I don't get back to my verse, we're not going to get through chapter 9. The end has come, the end has come. It has dawned for you, behold, it has come. Doom has come to you who dwell in the land, the time has come. A day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and, and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. 
I will repay you for your abominations. My eye is not going to spare. I'm not going to have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, excuse me, and according to your abominations, which your mips in your midst. And then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day. Behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitudes. None of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has been sold. Though he may still be alive, for the vision concerns the whole multitude. And it shall not turn back, and no one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is on their multitude. The sword is outside. And the pestilence and the famine within, whoever is in the field will die by the sword. Who's ever in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains, like doves of the valleys and all their mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble, every knee will be weak as water. They also will be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, baldness on their heads. And they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuge. And their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. In the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now this is one of the places... um, well, let's just do a little sidetrack. And you're familiar with this verse, but it's, it's uh, Revelation 6, verse 17. Is another place that we find this terminology, for the great day of his wrath has come. It's called in verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb. So we have in, in the uh, sixth seal, a declaration of uh, who's responsible for the judgment that's going to come during the great tribulation period. Uh, We're living in the age of grace. It's called the church age. It has a beginning, Pentecost. It has an end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It's called the rapture. And that's a, a distinct period of time. And when that time is over, we enter into this period of time. Now the people who have heard the gospel um, are held accountable for what you hear. Um, and, you know, people play games in their minds. And uh, we play games with ourselves. Um, sometimes people will appear to be interested and open with the Lord but in the back of their mind, they're going, no way am I going to turn my controls over to anybody else but myself. And when the Lord does come, there will be people who 
walk the walk, talk the talk, but they really weren't born again, they're going to be left behind. Um, then there will be those who openly reject the gospel straight out, and um, they will enter into this period of time that's called the wrath of the Lamb. Now, if I would take this verse here, verse 16 of chapter 6 of Revelation, where it calls the great tribulation, the one bringing judgment is none other than the Lord himself. For the great day of his wrath has come. Now, what I find interesting is that's the same verbiage that we have back here. You can go back to Ezekiel. And it talks about, um, in verse, mm, the day of his wrath, I just read it. All this on their head, da, 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 da. Which one? 17? 19, thank you. They will throw their silver into the street. Oh, in the day of the wrath of the Lord. And there it is. And here it's very descriptive. Um, and all the different verbiage that the Lord is using to describe, it's come, it's here, it's happening. And it's finally come. Well, we're saying that right now. We're saying that the day of the Lord is coming. We're saying the rapture of the church is imminent. And when it's happened, it's going to be according to Matthew 24, when people aren't expecting it. People will be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, buying and selling, all of a sudden, out of here. And it'll be just, just like that. Um, as far as signposts for the rapture, there are really none, except that the more we see the fig tree budding in Israel, what we see happening with, this is a point I made on Sunday, um, Isaiah 17, verse one. Damascus is to be destroyed, never to be inhabited again. And now I just tell you that we just went to DEFCON 3, and one of the main reasons they said for the tension is because of what's taking place between the United States and Russia in Syria. What is the capital of Syria? Damascus. Who is the president, Assad? Who's propping him up? Putin. Interesting when you connect the dots. It's all there. So we could be saying in, in the same way in Matthew 25 when the Lord talked about the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. The wise ones had their lamps trimmed and all of a sudden there was a shout. said, behold, the bridegroom is coming. You know another way of saying that? Jesus is coming soon. <laughs> well, how do you know? Because the biggest signpost is the Middle East. And Damascus could fall tomorrow. And we just went to death come three this week. And everybody, and the devil's saying, look over here, look over here. No, 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 no. Look here <laughs> and see just how quickly things are coming. And we could very easily say the end has come, the end has come, the end has come. We're sitting on the edge of all this right now. Oh, Dwight, you're so negative. You're such a doomsday sayer. No, you know what we're doing? We're teaching through the book of Ezekiel and connecting some dots. Another good place for an amen. We're simply teaching through the word and uh, for those that um, uh, think that we talk too much about prophecy, if you teach the Bible, you have to talk about prophecy. Because a third of the Bible, almost a third of the Bible is prophecy. You just can't get around it. And when you connect the dots that happened then, 
And it's all about them, this major period of their history being in captivity, but they're gonna come back only for an example because the Lord's gonna use it again as a reference point. And this is something as we teach through the scriptures that you need to see. We talked a little bit, let me give you just two examples. I talked about the event called the rapture, where in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're gonna be changed. And I asked the question, has that ever happened before? And the answer is, and I used two for an example. I used Enoch, remember? Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. And we explained that he, his name actually had a meaning. He had a son whose name was Methuselah. And his name means his death shall bring. Will bring what? The judgment. And so the year that Methuselah died was the year that the flood came. Coincidence? I don't think so. And uh, we went on to talk um, about Elisha. The two men, one of the statements we made that people, because Enoch didn't die, um, they believe that Moses and Enoch, I mean Elijah and Enoch, should be the two witnesses. And I said, people like to pull out the scripture, it's appointed under man wants to die. Enoch didn't die, and Elisha didn't die. Elijah got raptured too. Except the Lord wanted Elisha to see him being taken up, where Enoch was just plain old raptured. So if you think that Enoch is one of the two witnesses, guess what? You're on solid ground, and I wouldn't argue with you. You're wrong, but I wouldn't argue with you. I think he's Moses because of what happened in Matthew chapter 17 where Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the miracles, my sidetracked, was giving examples of, of things happening so that we'll have faith to believe they could happen again. One of the miracles uh, during the tribulation period is that there's no rain in the days of their prophecy. Well, Revelation 11 verse two says their prophecy is for 1,260 days. Well, how long is that? Exactly three and a half years. And then you read in James chapter five, where it says Elijah was just an average Joe, ordinary guy, but when he prayed, it didn't rain for three and a half years. So when we read verses like, like that, Again, we ask the question, well, has that ever happened before? It's never, that's crazy. You believe that it's not gonna rain for three and a half years? I do believe that. Well, why do I believe that? Because it happened before. So is God gonna bring back Israel again? A lot of my denomination growing up actually had um, anti-Semitism in in their bloodstream. And... um, our replacement in our theology saying that God is through with Israel. And uh, those promises now belong to the church. And that was a popular belief for many, many, many years. Only a small minority said, well, it seems impossible, but somehow God's gonna bring the Jews back into the land. How's that gonna happen? I watched Hindu's list last night. I wanna start getting ready for Israel. And I don't ever wanna forget um, what happened. And um, 
and watching it, you know, it's very, very sobering, of course, but it's something that we would think as human beings could never, ever happen. The atrocities of what t- took place with six million Jewish people being exterminated for no other reason than that they were Jews. We'll talk more about that on Sunday. And boy, I am getting sidetracked here. All right, back, back to wherever I was. <laughs> Making the connection that um, um, this happened and it will, it will happen again. Verse 20, and, and as for the beauty of his ornaments, he said it in majesty, but they made, made from it the images of their abomination and their detestable things. Therefore, I will make it like refuge to them. I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them and they will defile my secret place. For robbers shall enter it and defile it. Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. That's one of the signs of uh, lawlessness uh, in the last days. Um, crime is rising right now. Every night there's some sort of lawlessness and some city across the country. Therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there won't be any. Disaster will come upon disaster and rumor will be upon rumor. And they will seek a vision for a prophet but the law will perish from the priests and the council from the elders. Disaster will come upon disaster. The Lord says when the last days come, this is, he calls it um, the beginning of sorrows, what we're entering into right now. In other words, from here on out, it's not gonna get better, it's gonna get worse. Bad place to ask for an amen, but I'm gonna ask for one. Perilous times will come. That's what the Bible teaches. Not the prosperity doctrine that's prevalent today, that it's just going to get better and God's got a great plan for your life. How do you know that? Uh, look, at, look at God's great plan for Paul's life. Paul, do I have a great plan for your life? Wherever you go, tell Paul that he's going to suffer. Whenever, wherever he goes, he's going to suffer. I'll take you before kings. I'll have you speak before dignitaries. But Paul, I'm going to show you how many things you're going to suffer for my name's sake. Oh, that's quite a calling. Praise the Lord. How do I sign up for that one? <laughs> no. And I, I'm, uh, I try to be honest when, with new people that I get to pray with. And I said, well, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is your name's just been put in the book of life. The good news is there really are angels rejoicing right now because of what you just said. That's true. Now, at the same time, um, you've just joined the side that the devil hates, therefore you have just become a target. And I don't know how he's going to attack you, but the Bible says as soon as a person received the word, then comes the devil, then comes the devil, then comes the devil. He wasn't there before. He wasn't bothering you before. 
But then comes the devil and he tries to take the seed that's been just sown in your heart. In the parable of the sower, what is the seed? Answer, the word of God. How do I get the word of God out of this guy's heart? Then it says, lest they should believe and be saved. So if we're gonna be honest with people when we talk to them about the Lord, tell them, hey, good news. Mm, Bad news too. Um, Before you only had one nature, and that was your flesh, and whatever you told your flesh you could have, you you could do it. Now you have the Spirit of God living in you. And it, the Bible says they're at enmity against each other. They, they war against each other 24-7. Amen? <laughs> and if that's not happening, then, then um, um, Hebrews chapter 12 says if that battle isn't raging, then you're not even born again. You're not even a son. Because when the warfare comes and you mess up, the Lord's going to spank you. And if you're not getting spanked, then you're not a son because which father doesn't discipline his own son, how much more your heavenly father isn't gonna correct us because we're sons. So here, the reason for the severity and um, the judgment is because of what they have done. The Lord says, you need the woodshed. Judy and I were listening, we're driving somewhere today, and all of a sudden, there was my man, J. Vernon McGee, on on the radio. And he's about as old-fashioned as you can possibly get. And, um, you know, J. Vernon, he's just an old, my friends, you're gonna, if you read, you gotta read your Bible, because if if you're not reading your Bible, you're just gonna get yourself in a whole heap of trouble. There's only one way, I do a terrible McGee impression, but he says, my friends, it's, you learn your Bible by repetition, repetition, repetition. Not very good, was it? <laughs> but he's spot on. And he's just old school. The name of his ministry is through the Bible. How appropriate. And um, everything, he's with, been with the Lord for years. And I still read his commentaries today only to find out that Pastor Chuck was a big J. Vernon McGee fan, because <laughs> I, I listen to Chuck too. Um, and if you've been influenced by him, that's, that is definitely good. So make a chain, verse 20, destruction comes, they will seek peace, but there'll be none. Verse 27, the king will mourn, the princes will be clothed with desolation, and all the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their ways, because they're God's kids that are messing up. And according to what they deserve, I will judge them. And here it is again. And then they will know that I'm the Lord. I'm their heavenly father. My kids need disciplining. So he's using Nebuchadnezzar as a woodshed. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. It's the beginning of a little change of thought here, a vision of the glory of the temple uh, destroyed because of its defilement. So now uh, it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month, as I sat in the house with the elders of Judah before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, 
from the appearance of the waist and downward fire, from his waist and upward like the appearance of the brightness of the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair and the spirit lifted me between earth and heaven and brought me in visions to God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy and behold the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. He's having an experience that that we read about in chapter one. And now the Lord takes him. Um, I believe this is a a picture of the father himself. Um, And when we did this study in chapter one, we went to Revelation five. The one on the throne is the same description of chapter one. And now the Lord takes him right to Jerusalem and verses five and six describe this image of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, lift lift your eyes toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north and there north of the altar gate was the image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? the great abomination that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see even greater abominations. Now I don't know exactly what sort of idolatry this image of jealousy was, but the Lord was telling Ezekiel, can you believe that they're doing that in my house? Um, the center of attention is once again, just take your news bites and just look at the very first page. Imagine going back to 591. This is uh, December 591 BC. And you're looking at the picture of um, the Dome of the Rock. This is exactly where the Lord took Ezekiel. My personal conviction is, and again, I don't get dogmatic about this, um, Rabbi Richmond is a friend. Uh, he has personally uh, guided us up several times to the Temple Mount. He is 100% convinced that the Dome of the Rock is where Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple stood. I don't believe it was. I believe it is north of there. Um, um, Oh boy, how much time do I have here? I'll, I'll go for it for a little bit here. Uh, we'll be there. Uh, there's a place called the Dome of the Spirits. It's a little cupola. It's not very big, maybe nine feet tall, four feet wide, and um, maybe five or six columns that hold it up. And if you would take a straight line and look right at the Mount of Olives from the Dome of the spirits, that's what it's called. And you would look right at the temple of the Mount of Olives, and you're looking straight, what you would run into is um, the gate that is sealed up. It's not the original gate that was built by the Turks, but underneath it is the foundation of the original gate, of the eastern gate that the Lord would have came into during the time of Herod's temple. Um, 
Dr. Alexander, what's his name, professor at the Hebrew University, in his writings and research, um, claims that during the time of Herod's temple, that you could stand on the Mount of Olives, look through the Eastern Gate, and it would line up with the Temple Mount. This doesn't, this picture right here, does not line up with that gate. One time when I was there by myself, I was coming back from India and I had a board meeting with uh, Moon Salim. I was on the board at that time with her. And so I, you know, I played with my day off, just uh, going around. And one of the things I did is I actually paced off. I went to where the Easter gate that sealed up was. And then I paced it. I, I, I marked my steps and I counted until I got to the lion's gate and was able to go in and then go back to the temple. And when I got to the part where the wall was, I, I started marking my steps and I began to count it right off. And sure enough, as I got to where it was and I looked straight ahead, they had even all the stones on the temple mount, like a jigsaw puzzle. None of them were in any set order except in one place. There's a, like, there's a straight aisle right here. They had a roll of stones that were set so that it looked like a pavement. And it was spot on and it stopped about 20 feet short of the Dome of the Spirits. And then they had the cross puzzle back in there again. So what are you saying, Dwight? Well, I'm saying that the temple has to be rebuilt. The Antichrist has to come up with some sort of peace agreement. And with that peace agreement, I believe that Jerusalem will become an international city. And I believe the Antichrist, after we're gone, will give permission to the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. Six months, according to Rabbi Richmond, is all they need to put it all together. Did you know it's already prefabricated and ready to rock and roll? They're ready to go. They just need the, the green light so Moshe Dayan in, in the, in the Six-Day War, he took the Temple Mount. But he immediately gave it back to the Muslim world because he didn't want World War III on his hands. He just wanted to be back in the land. Whether that was a mistake or not, we don't know. But when you read Revelation 11 carefully, it says, John, I want you to measure the temple. And when you measure the temple the, the uh, tribulation temple, I don't want you to measure the outer court. This would be where the Dome of the Rock is because it's been given over to the Gentiles. And I thought, well, that's sure interesting. Don't measure the outer court. It's been given to the Gentiles. So who are the Gentiles? Anybody who's not a Jewish. So this was, but to measure the temple, so the temple's going to be there, but I think, I don't think this is gonna be destroyed. And I think Rabbi Richmond is wrong. And I don't want to be here to find out for sure. <laughs> but um, it just makes sense to me. And it's, um, it ties in with what the Lord told John to do in Revelation 11. So uh, let's pick it up in verse 7. The painting on the wall. So he brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man dig into the wall, and when I dug into the wall, there was a door, 
And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before me me the 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Well, this would have been the Sanhedrin. I just mentioned Rabbi Richmond by name. The Sanhedrin has been reestablished, and Rabbi Richmond is one of the guys on the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's the only one who can um, say that uh, this is a red heifer, and he would be the one to inspect it, and he would be the, the guy with the authority to say that this can be used for the purification of the Levitical priesthood so that they can once again perform their priestly duties, but not without the ashes of a red heifer. So they still haven't found one, but he's the guy that has the authority to do so. And in the midst stood Jezadai, the son of Zaphod. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up, and he said to be son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room, of his idols, for they say the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So they're into uh, the very highest level of um, the the Sanhedrin was worshiping these other pagan gods. Now, Tammuz, did a little research with Tammuz today, verses 12 and 13. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see even a greater abomination than they're doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz, um, boy, we learned something today we didn't know before. Um, First of all, Tammuz um, goes all the way back to ancient paganism, a great annual festival in commemoration of the death and resurrection of Tammuz. And it was celebrated by an alternate weeping and then rejoicing, in which in many countries was considerably later than the Christian festival being observed in in, uh, Palestine, in Assyria. Uh, In June therefore called the month of Tammuz. In Egypt, about the middle of May, and Britain sometime in April, uh, to conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity. So here we have this pagan worship of of Tammuz, of uh, his death and his resurrection. But what it actually developed into was an event that lasted for 40 days, and we call it Lent today. We learned today for the first time that the worship of Tammuz actually led into modern day, the 40 days before Easter, we call Lent. Originally, even in Rome, Lent with its preceding revelries of the carnival was entirely unknown. And even when fasting before the Christian, uh, Pash was held to be uh, necessary but it was a slow step that in this respect it came to conform with the ritual of paganism. 
what may have been the period of fasting in the Roman church before the sitting of the Nicene Council does not very clearly appear, but for a considerable period after the council, we have distinct evidence that it did not exceed three weeks, but that was extended. Now, according to the words of Socrates writing on this very subject about 450 AD are these. Those who inhabit the princely city of Rome fast together before Easter three weeks, expecting the, accepting the Saturday and the Lord's Day. But at last, when the worship of Ashtar was rising into the uh, ascent, steps were taken to take the whole Chaldean Lent of six weeks to 40 days made imperative on all within the Roman Empire of the West. And the way was prepared for this by the council held at the time of uh, the Bishop of Rome, 514 AD, and about the year 519, which decreed that Lent would be solemnly kept before Easter. So until that time, there was no such thing as Lent. What it was was the worship of Tammuz, which when, of course, when Constantine came in, they took the pagan holidays of Easter and, Christ- and Christmas, and they, they basically took a pagan holiday and Christianized it. What we learn today is where Lent came from. It stems back to the worship of Tammuz. How's that for a trivia question the next time you're paying trivia? You can say, where do you think Lent came from? (laughs) So there, uh, verses 13 and 14, the Lord says to Ezekiel, you're not gonna believe this one. Look what the women are doing. They're weeping for Tammuz. Now this takes on a deeper meaning because in the original way they worshiped, it was back and forth. It was a death and a resurrection. So they had days of weeping for the death and days of rejoicing for the resurrection. And in this case, they're weeping. So it was all part of the tradition that goes back that far. Let's switch from Tammuz to um, um, sun worship. Then he said to me, have you seen this one, son of man? Turn again, you will see even greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and there at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations what they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. They have returned to to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I am not going to hear. We have 11 verses, and I think we can crack them out. Uh, The call to the six men. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a battle axe in his hand. 
One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Uh, Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim, which had been to the threshing floor of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. Now, we're going to get into chapter 10 next week. But all that's going on, all this abomination, at the same time, the Lord is still there. And we find here, it says that the Lord went up from the cherub. And what that means is that the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, would have been in the Holy of Holies. And when it says above the cherub, we're talking about the mercy seat where the angel's wings touched. And that's what's being made reference to here. The Lord is still there. And the Lord does see. And he's um, saying that now, though, it's beginning to rise up. And when we get to chapter 10 next week, the Lord is leaving. So verse 4. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. And I want you to put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in it. Now, I've always thought it interesting about putting marks on people, especially as pertains to the book of Revelation. And um, here we have a mark, and he wants the ones put a mark on, on the men who sigh and cry over the abominations. In other words, those that don't want any part of this. He says, mark those guys. And to the others, he said in my hearing, go after them through the city and kill. Don't let your eye have pity or spare them. Utterly slay the old and young, men, maidservants, children, women. Do not come near anyone who is in the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to me, Defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go out, and he went out and killed in the city. Now before I finish this up with Ezekiel's weeping, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7. And again, I told you on Sunday, remember the chart I put up? And I said every chapter in Ezekiel is going to have a correlation in the book of Revelation. Well, here's just one of them. In Revelation 7, right after I just read the last verse of chapter 6, where we have uh, the wrath of the Lamb about to be poured out. But before it's poured out, he, he says, um, well, here's where the wind stops. I saw four angels standing at the four corners holding the four winds of the earth so that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? Well, the rain cycle doesn't happen. So we find that actually at the beginning of the three and a half years. And then he says, do not harm the seer of the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number who were sealed. They were 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. Oh, no, 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 that's not right. right, right. No, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So whenever a JW knocks on my door, we go to Revelation 7. Do you guys believe the Bible's the word of God? Absolutely. And I said, do you believe it's an Aaron? Absolutely, we believe it's an Aaron. Okay, let's read this now. It doesn't say Jehovah's Witnesses, 
Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit gets very specific. And he says they're Jews from the 12 tribes. Um, the only one not mentioned here is the tribe of Dan. They're not mentioned here because it was the tribe of Dan that led the children of Israel into all this idolatry. And yet, during the millennium, when, uh, when we get to the end of Ezekiel, chapter 40 to 48, we have one whole chapter that's dedicated to the 12 tribes of Israel and what portion of land they're going to get during the millennial period. Guess who's in the top of the list? Dan. And it's a picture of God's grace and his mercy. But not here. We're entering into judgment. And they're not protected. But these other guys are. So connecting the dots here, these guys are going to go through a terrible period of time. And we just read, okay, before we, as this judgment takes place, I want you to put a mark on those that are grieved over (laughs) what's going on in Jerusalem. They're just bummed to the core. So, as we look at the world today, don't we do this every once in a while? (sighs) Lord, come soon. Because it's getting so bad. And you know, be encouraged. That's good, not bad. Because what does the Lord say here? I want you to go out and look for the guys that are sighing. The ones that are just, I can't believe this is happening. Mark those guys, and they're not going to be harmed. Everybody else, take them out. And they're going to, they're going to get what they deserve. So the last couple of verses here is Ezekiel weeping. We'll close with this tonight. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. And it's my head be hard in Ezekiel. I fell on my face and I cried out and I said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. You know, the Lord is still in the Holy of Holies and he sees everything. And as for me also, my eyes will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And just then, the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded me. So there were those that were sealed and protected. In the book of Revelation, a connection, before the judgment comes, there's 144,000 Jews that will be sealed and protected for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for allowing us to get through these chapters tonight. We know that you're good and you're holy, but we also know you're a just God and you will not tolerate idolatry. And uh, having your people worship anyone else but you, that you're a jealous God. And yet, you look at the hearts of all men, and you see in our own world today those of us that are grieved to the core by what we see happening in our schools, in our court system, in our government. And we don't see really any other hope except for the promise that you promised to come and, and set up your own throne And Lord, how we pray that your kingdom would come. And uh, help us not fall into 
what you clearly said would be happening in the last days where people would actually begin saying, where is the promise of his coming? And not be looking and watching and being those five wise virgins who had their wicks trimmed and they were ready. When they saw everything hitting the fan, they went out to meet you. Lord, may it be the same with us. Help us be found watching and waiting and praying. So I pray that you'd go before us as we continue our study in Ezekiel and bless our fellowship as we go home tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.